so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve as Chair of Research and Technology Ethics and also help lead the ERLC Research Institute. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech Newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the digital public square. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. Well, in today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Mark Dooley to discuss the life and work of Sir Roger Scruton in light of his new volume, Against the Tide, the best of Roger Scruton's columns, commentaries, and criticism. Mark Dooley is an Irish philosopher, author, and journalist who has held lectureships at the National University of Ireland and the University of College Dublin, where he was also the John Henry Newman Scholar of Theology. From 2003 to 2006, he wrote on foreign affairs for the Sunday Independent, and from 2006 to 2018, he wrote a weekly column on moral matters for the Irish Daily Mail. He's currently a contributing editor to the European Conservative Magazine. Dooley is Sir Roger Scruton's literary executor. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Dr. Dooley, thank you so much for joining us today here on the Digital Public Square. Before we dive into this work and specifically into kind of Scruton's life, I'd love to hear a little bit about your story and kind of your journey with him. Obviously, you're one of his literary executors, and you kind of helped to compile and edit a lot of his work along the way. But I'd love to kind of hear a little bit about your story, your journey with him, and what motivated you all to put a volume like this together. I was uh, lecturing in philosophy, actually, way back when. Um, the very early 90s. And uh, he was invited to give an endowed series of lectures called the Agnes Cumming Lectures, which very notable people had given over the years, you know, Chomsky, Alastair MacIntyre, uh, Jacques Derrida, and so on. And, uh, and next thing, Roger Scruton appears, this quintessential Englishman whom you would consider more of fitting to the 19th century than the, the 20th century. And, uh, and yet there he was. He, he was a young man at that time. And only those who were very much interested in his work or in English uh, life knew who he was. He had written uh, extensively, but the works hadn't percolated into the popular philosophical bloodstream at that point. He was a journalist. 
and redoubtable one at that. Uh, but again, it was very much contained within the Indus sphere. So when I laid eyes on this man, I was uh, enthralled. I, I mean, I often say, if you've ever seen a, a caricature, the popular caricatures or the idealized portraits of Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher from the 19th century, that's what he looked like back then. And he was calm, measured. Uh, he spoke about the philosophy, uh, the aesthetics of music, rather. And he gave a series of political lectures. And it wasn't... I mean, he is known as the foremost conservative philosopher of his generation, but it wasn't overtly conservative. Uh, it was somber. It was it was very reflective, uh, what he spoke about. And uh, it stuck with me. And eventually, uh, I got tired of the world, as it was. And uh, I, I always remembered that his, his, his great lament for the passing of what he called home, uh, home, this this idealized version of ourselves. That's all we always want to return after the fall to this place of the, the homeland of the heart or the homeland of the soul. It's a metaphor for many things, not least the physical home, of course, but also the metaphysical home. And that stuck with me, and uh, I uh, became uh, his friend then in the uh, in in the uh, early two thousands, and I got to writing an intellectual biography of him. No one had ever written on him before. Um, he was much better known then, but still people kept their distance because he was a controversialist in his writings. Uh, but I wrote an intellectual biography called Roger Scruton, the Philosopher on Dover Beach, which took him more into the popular mainstream. And from there, uh, we became very good friends. I mean, really good friends. It's strange what people often ask, how does an, an Irishman befriend this quintessential Tory Englishman? Well, very simple, because he had a vision of the world, which I found to be right and true, and distilled everything from all of the philosophical angles and fields and spheres that I had worked on over the years. Uh, we then worked on a uh, the Roger Scruton Reader together, and then a book uh, called Conversations with Roger Scruton, which went down very well uh, about all his life and themes. And finally, to this to this work against the tide that we're discussing today, which is a posthumous work, of course, which I uh, put together after his death. But in our final conversation together on a very gloomy night a couple of weeks before he died in his farm in Wilshire, his beautiful farm in Wilshire, uh, he lamented the fact that his journalism, which was as much of a body of work as his philosophy, needed a, a, a collection. It needed to be brought together. It was uh, diffuse. And by the way, I mean, he had written, uh, he was writing and publishing journalism before he started publishing philosophy. So all of this needed a coherence and a template that would gather it together. And I felt that to be my first duty, not only as his literary executor, but as his friend. And um, and there you have it. That's So that's the result uh, against the tide. Well, I definitely want to dig in on that because I think a lot of listeners uh, may be familiar with Roger Scruton, the writer and specifically the philosopher, but maybe not as familiar with him as a journalist. But one of the things as I was kind of working through this volume that I was even struck with is there are some really old kind of entries in here. And I say old in the sense of 30, 40 years old, um, which predate a lot of the philosophical works that I had read of him. So can you dive into a little bit of kind of his story and his journey in the field of journalism? And maybe how, in many ways, his journalistic pursuits shaped his philosophical pursuits. Yes. Uh, he, I once asked him, and it's recorded in uh, conversations with Roger Scruton, you know, what did he want to be at a certain point in his life? He came from a socialist background. 
rather meagre one. Uh, his father was a socialist fanatic of the old kind, uh, I mean, of the Orwellian kind, not, not the, uh, the Stalin kind, uh, an old patriot who hated the, the Soviet Union, um, an old English patriot who believed that the aristocracy, you know, destroyed England. But it made Roger's life very hard because he saw the liberating value of high culture and the human fulfillment that it contained. Uh, and these things his father despised, although he was a, a schoolteacher. So but, but the one thing that did give him an, uh, an outlet and an ideal to work towards was writing. Um, writing and music. Uh, he was an accomplished musician from a very early age, self-taught in piano and guitar. But writing, he said, he, he all he wanted to do at a certain point, it, it kind of dawned on him that he didn't want to be a philosopher per se. He started off in the sciences, actually, and then shifted to philosophy when he was in Cambridge. But he wanted to be a writer. That is the thing I must be, he said. That is the thing I must be, he said to himself. And he set himself a commitment to write 500 words daily after that. And he did. Uh, he never broke it. So you could go on forever. Uh, reading uh, his works, much to your delight, Jason. You've only started, you're only at the tip of the iceberg. It's going to go on forever. So uh, get, get, get ready for the ride, uh, a long ride too. But, uh, and so, and what did he write? He wrote little compositions, little short stories, little poems, uh, little reviews and so forth, philosophical, uh, popular, uh, political pieces. And so his first major success was uh, a, a review uh, in uh, the Spectator magazine. Uh, and it wasn't, it was, uh, it, it was philosophical. It was a review of, and I contain it in the book, actually, uh, of Michel Foucault's Madness and Civilization. And, uh, and it was that type of thing that got him noticed uh, within the, the literary salons of, 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 of Great Britain. Uh, and, and so he, he, he was known as a commentator an extraordinarily bright commentator, witty commentator, reflective commentator, and controversial commentator before he was known as a philosopher. So he was a writer first and a philosopher second. And it's interesting that when uh, we held a conference on his religious philosophy, actually, uh, in Montreal in 2014, I remember the great philosopher John Cottingham, the great English philosopher, saying to me, because I had uh, been a columnist for some 14 years at that stage, and... Uh, he said to me, we're discussing this uh, and how philosophers, you know, the few philosophers that there are that have drifted into journalism. Uh, he said all philosophers really should have uh, an apprenticeship in journalism. And I quite agree with him. Uh, I think it loosens the tongue. It shows you that if you're to ever make an impact on this world, and philosophy ought to make an impact on this world, that you need to reach a popular audience. And you cannot do that unless you can speak in a vernacular that the popular audience can understand. Yeah, I think that's a brilliant point because that's one of the things, especially in my teaching career and research as well, is if I'm not able to communicate, if I'm not able to connect with everyday people, am I really doing the work, the real work of philosophy? You can do kind of the high-minded stuff at times, but if you're not able to communicate those complex ideas in simple ways, not simplistic, but in simple ways, the majority of us can understand it. It always has struck me as you're not really connecting with people. You're not really doing the work of philosophy and kind of pursuing and helping people to pursue the way of wisdom. One of the things that we kind of talked about right before 
uh, we jumped on the podcast here was I, on the occasion of his death, actually, is where I was exposed to him as a, a writer. I had a number of colleagues and friends at the time who had been deeply influenced by Scruton over the years. And on the occasion of his death in January of 2020, they wrote kind of tributes or an obituary of sorts, uh, talking about his influence on their life. And that's where I was, I was exposed to his works for the first time. I picked up a number of his works, kind of worked through them over the next year or two, and one of the things that has struck me as I've, I've delved into his work is that, as you mentioned, he had that sort of wit. There was also a depth. There was a controversial element, obviously. But the way that he engaged other people and other ideas um, was striking to me because while it was controversial in the ideas, there was a, a respect for other people and a respect for ideas that you don't often see, especially in popular culture. There's almost a disdain for other people. So while he may have vehemently disagreed at times, um, and maybe all, a lot of the time, actually, with kind of the culture of, uh, of his time, it struck me at the way he approached that. And so I wanted to see if you could expand a little bit about that posture of kind of engaging other people, especially controversial ideas. And while he was gentle, but he was yet poignant, in his approach to other people, especially throughout his writings in journalism and even in philosophy? I often say, uh, both in my public life and in more philosophical settings, that you can say anything with grace and get away with it. And he had that uh, great element of grace woven into the fabric of his being. Uh, he was controversial because he had controversial things to say, merely because he rode against the tide of, uh, you know, the dominant uh, uh, ideals of, 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 of the liberal establishment. And they were in the ascendancy when he was writing. And of course, they they subscribed to a vision of the world that was dominated by the the uh, USSR uh, and uh, Soviet socialism, and therefore most of the academy, certainly in Britain at the time, uh, all the pockets of it were in the United States, not to the degree that it is now, but they were there nonetheless. Uh, subscribe to it. So you had these armchair Soviets sitting in uh, endowed chairs in British universities, taking British money and being acclaimed by, you know, the political establishment, while at the same time speaking in favour of, of uh, uh, you know, the Soviet worldview uh, and subscribing to all sorts of, uh, you know, tyrannical visions of the world. So Roger had enough of that and he was prepared to put his neck on the line and say why this was wrong, but not in any ad hominem sense, not in any polemical sense. You know, although the pieces that I tried to gather here to give that sense of his life in Against the Tide, his writing life, that is, although they are punchy and although they can be polemical at times, they are never without a moral and they are never without a deep thought and a deep teaching in them to explain why such a position is wrong. It's not merely wrong because he says it's wrong. He tells you why it's wrong. And he tries to convince the reader uh, to uh, hold, as he calls it, the un unfashionable view or the unfashionable opinion that he holds. And merely because it's unfashionable doesn't mean that it's right. It doesn't mean that it's wrong, rather. It is right most of the time, in his opinion. So he takes this angle of being the polemicist, while at the same time showing you rationally and intellectually why the position is defensible, and not only defensible, but one that can be argued if you're willing to engage with grace. The great thing about him was that he was able to look at the worldview which he vehemently disagreed with, and take each thinker who... Uh, 
you know, embodied those views and deconstruct them uh, on their own terms. Now, and no other thinker does that uh, and has done it so consistently. They, the left, of course, uh, in, in Britain and Europe at the time couldn't stand it because for the very reason that he was showing intellectually how this was incoherent. And it wasn't just I'm dismissing these out of hand as being, you know, intellectual imposters to coin the current phrase or or charlatans or gobbledygook merchants or whatever it is. No, these people ought to be taken seriously. You know, he he, he writes very critically of Jean-Paul Sartre, for example, both in his journalism and in his uh, philosophy. And yet... For him, Jean-Paul Sartre was one of his heroes. He wanted to be identified, he said this to me many times, as a person in the mode of Jean-Paul Sartre for the very reason that Sartre was a genius who combined philosophy, journalism, literary criticism, literary works in his novels and so forth and his poetry, and was given that kind of grand respect that is owed to what... uh, we used to be called a man of letters. And, and that's what I once said to Roger, well, how would you like to be defined? Uh, you know, a public intellectual? He says, well, you could call me that. He said, I'm an intellectual and I've gone public, so I'm a public intellectual. I said, well, how about man of letters? And he said, that's it. That's what I would like to be remembered as. So he was able to take on these people and show them respect. I mean, the up to, he wrote a book in the mid-1980s called uh, Thinkers of the New Left, and about 14 thinkers who all epitomized uh, radical left-wing thinking. Uh, and it, I, I urged him to do an updated version of it, which he was very hesitant to do because he believed that work, Thinkers of the New Le- Left, destroyed his life. He got terrible reviews. There was a push for him to be thrown out of his university in London. It was really damning, the, the vitriol that came at him. So he was very hesitant around uh, 2010 to 2014 when I was at him and at him and at him to, 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 to revise it. But eventually he did. And uh, it was uh, came out as Fools, Frauds and Firebrands, Thinkers of the New Left. Wonderful book. And uh, uh, in it, he updates it with a few new thinkers, drops a few of the older ones that people wouldn't be familiar with today. And it is a tour de force in which he says at the outset, not all of these people are fools by any means. Some of them are geniuses. Now, it's rare to hear a conservative thinker uh, or any thinker calling his opponents geniuses and taking the geniuses on on their own terrain. But he did that. And for the most part, he did it with grace. Of course, there are always the polemical asides and flourishes. But uh, what writer does not do that? Yeah, that's something I've really noticed as I've started to kind of dig into his corpus is there's a level of respect for other thinkers, especially even those whom he vehemently disagreed with. As we kind of shift our focus a little bit to this new work against the tide, I'd love to hear a little bit of the story. I mean, you've already kind of alluded to this in the sense of the the columns and commentaries that you selected. Obviously, there's a a method to the madness in many ways. There's a structure that you have for the volume and why you chose certain uh, articles versus other ones. And I'd love to hear a little bit of kind of the background. Why these themes, why these specific pieces um, as you were putting a work like this together? Well, it was mainly uh, reflective of the previous books that I had published on him, uh, which were thematic. And uh, you see, the, 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 the great thing about Roger Scruton was that he, unlike the large majority of philosophers, as, you, as I, I'm sure you'll agree with me on this, Jason, that they don't uh, walk the talk. They speak a lot, but they don't actually embody the, the, the virtues that they speak about most of the time, at least not in public. Uh, he did that. Uh, I mean, his, his whole life 
was a an experience of his philosophy. You know, you 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 observed him and you saw the philosophy in motion, uh, the life on the farm, the uh, composer of opera, the sharp intellectual who could speak for hours on any theme and keep audiences enthralled, but then go back to you, you know mucking out horses in the evening. Uh, the the person who wrote beautifully on wine and then shared a glass of wine with you and spoke about it in almost Eucharistic terms so that you could see that this was more than just a convivial event to bind two friends together. This was a sacramental occurrence. So these the themes in this book, I wanted to reflect that too, to help readers who have read Conversations with Roger Scruton or my intellectual biography, uh, or indeed the reader, all of which have these themes. And I wanted to slot the journalism into them so that you, they could be companion pieces to the philosophy or to the biographical statements that were made in the previous two works. And I think it worked very well because you see that the journalism was never detached from the philosophical concerns. The journalism was never an addendum to the philosophical concerns either. The journalism was, as I called it in another uh, piece subsequent to this, when I was writing about Against the Tide and why I wanted to do it. I called it the postcards from the front line. They were kind of snapshots uh, of contemporary life as Roger worked his way through it, contemporary to him, of course, and uh, that, that showed readers or invited readers into a philosophical awareness of their situation, irrespective of what they were doing, whether they were mending motorcycles, whether they were eating fish, whether they were drinking wine, whether they were opposed to ideology, whether they had, uh, you know, whether they were involved in the, in the science versus God debate, uh, no matter what they were doing, you know, whether they had concerns about the erosion of high culture and the dumbing down of culture, no matter where you were, these would show you a way into it that made it relevant to your everyday concerns and would then allow you to probe deeper into his philosophy. So there's never a, a radical break in Roger Scruton. The philosophy is contiguous with the journalism, the journalism is contiguous with the music, and so on. And so I see them as beautiful little windows, kind of stained glass windows into this world, this greater world that then is, it opens out in the, in, in, the, in, in the volumes, the philosophical volumes. So that was my thinking. And um, I, I think that anybody who reads this work with an open mind will be encouraged to go further because the whole point of a uh, column from his point of view was, as he says, and I quote this in the preface, I, I think, that it's, it's never to start from first principles, which he starts all his books with, you know, uh, from that basis, you know, starting from the foundations and working up to the, the conclusion. Never doubt that. It's, it's just a, a small, polemical, opinionated piece that will, however, draw you into an intellectual inquiry that stops short of overburdening the reader, but stimulates his or her interest in a particular topic. And uh, I think he does that without compare. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you on that because one of the things is you read these columns, you want more. He leaves you wanting more and kind of pushing you. And so it's kind of encouraged me to go back and pick up some of his works that I've worked through, kind of worked through in the begin. But also, and we'll talk about this later, about some other uh, works that he had that may not be as well known, uh, that you may not have sitting on your shelf. And we'll talk about that closer to the end. A theme that has arisen, not only in the conversation so far as you've mentioned high culture a few different times, that idea, um, but this idea that Scruton, one of the themes in his writings that you see is 
almost the degradation and kind of the downplaying or dumbing down of culture that we've seen. Uh, and you've mentioned that, whether it's in education, religion, marriage, family, society, kind of broader themes. I wanted to see if you could unpack that a little bit, because since you've mentioned it multiple times, the idea of high culture, how did Scruton use that language? What is he describing when he says high culture? And how is high culture being then corrupted or degraded in terms of kind of modern society? Well, high culture is simply the culture of bygone years. It's kind of, think of it as a, as a, as a kind of a literary culture in the broadest sense of li- literature, you know, a, a musical culture, a literary culture, a sacramental culture. So let's say in the era prior to the digital culture or the digital rev- revolution, um, uh, and this is no disrespect to, to the digital public square, uh, but prior to that, uh, people were informed by working uh, intellectually of things, really working intellectually. I mean, you had to grasp, you had to work, you had to, sh- you know, uh, take up the the, 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 gr- the grand masters of the tradition uh, in, in philosophy, in art, in religion, in whatever it was, and engage with those seriously uh, to become informed and to become a full member of society and to become a, to be put in touch with what it means to be human, not only to be put in touch with memory, the memory of your, of, of, of your people and the memory of your country, all of which are embodied in, in, in art, in religion, in philosophy, in music, uh, and in the general culture, uh, the cultural icons of, of, of your homestead, but to be put in touch with, with, with the greater ideals that uh, your, your, your uh, situation holds up for emulation and for education. Now, all of that, it seems to me, and it certainly seemed to Roger, uh, has been stripped away. It's been vandalized. It's, he called it the culture of repudiation. You know that, that we have now. Everything has been repudiated as being oppressive, or colonialization, or patriarchal, or whatever it is. Whatever the latest buzzword is that you know pours scorn on the best that has been said and taught, as Matthew Arnold put it. So the education, for example, that I have I received is far different to the education that my children are, are, are receiving currently. Uh, they don't understand me. They they they. they probably good for them, but not as far as I'm concerned, it's, it's a tragedy because they, they've missed out on, 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 on something that is so, that human life cannot be lived without it. And they get snapshots of it here at home. I mean, what does music, for example, and this is one of Roger's great passions, and he wrote numerous books on music, starting with the aesthetics of music, which is perhaps the greatest work of, of, uh, of, of musical aesthetics um, the philosophy of music to come out in the latter half of the 20th century. But it is very comprehensive. I've actually first given as a, um, a series of lectures at Boston University in the early 90s. And um, it, that work is so central to understanding how music ennobles the human spirit and where music takes you, where music takes us all, and why it's not merely a form of recreation or a form of art, and why what we listen to doesn't matter, i.e. whether we listen to pop or whether we listen to classical or whether we listen to Gregorian chant or sacred music. That really does matter to the type of person that we become. What you listen to determines the type of person you will become. Uh, he often had these wonderful, uh, interspersed throughout his works, these wonderful chapters on dancing or these wonderful comments on dancing or asides on dancing, because music, of course, is what prompts the dance. Now, 
classical music will prompt you to move in a certain way that pop music will not. And the way you move tells an awful lot about the values that you hold. And if you're gyrating wildly as a single individual uh, in defiance of the social order, that is prompted by the type of music that you listen to. Whereas the coordinated and, and almost mathematical dances of the classical era conjoin you with you can't they can't be danced alone they have to be danced with others and danced properly with others in formation and with beauty and with self-control and so forth so you see how the ideals now are being embodied through the music that we listen to now once you do away with that and once people lose touch with that once they're severed from that in the popular culture then they lose a way of being it's not just a way of listening and it's not just a a fad they've let go of or some sort of you know, recreational art form. It is a way of being in the world and with others. So all of that, again, the type of people that you read, if you don't read Dickens, if you, if you, if, if I mean, no disrespect to contemporary authors, but when you read contemporary authors and you read the likes of Dickens or Thackeray or Tolstoy or whoever it is, you're getting a different vision of the world. You know, uh, so, so in schools these days, uh, as compared to my day, Shakespeare is now optional. How can Shakespeare be optional in a human life? You don't understand the human heart, unless you, and you don't understand the, 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 the moral impulses of human beings unless you understand Shakespeare. So that's high culture at its best. And, and it, it, trains, and it, it trains our habits. It does what Aristotle says we ought to do in his Nicomachean Ethics, and that's to train the emotions, train the habits of young people to be a certain way to be virtuous, to be ethical, to be courageous, to be wise, and so on. And unless you've got these forms of emotional education in the ether, not just in school, in the ether, in the, you know, in the air, you know, in the culture, uh, well, then you are not only severing, as I say, you're the youth from their past, you're severing them from their very emotional life. And to have a, a generation that's severed from its emotional life is a, is, 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 is a terrible uh, thing. And it's, it's a prospect that none of us should hope to see, although we are seeing glimmers of what that's like just at the moment. Yeah, it's one of those things. It's funny because throughout this conversation so far, you've kind of mentioned this theme of what does it mean to be human? And that's something we've talked actually a lot about the, on this podcast so far is a lot of my work has been done in theological anthropology and specifically how that connects into ethics and kind of uh, society in general and how we organize society, human flourishing. But kind of continuing even on that theme of what does it mean to be human and kind of the emotional, intellectual life, you see this theme of education and kind of the purpose of education. That's something that in the volume I was encouraged to see and kind of was very intriguing is that there's a number of columns kind of talking about the nature and purpose of education even. And here in the United States, even especially amongst conservatives, but really kind of throughout our whole society, there are widespread debates over the purpose of education, what is being taught in our schools, uh, the rights and kind of responsibilities of parents when it comes to raising their children versus kind of what should the government doing, what should the schools be doing, as well as even over how gender ideology has been taking kind of center stage in a lot of our educational pursuits. I wanted to see if you could kind of unpack a little bit more about how Scruton approached kind of the purpose of education, as well as how education is more than just about utility, which is something I've noticed, especially here in the States, where education just comes like a means to an end. It's just about getting a job so you can pay the bills, so you can do X, Y, Z, and then go live your real life. But there's a different vision in Scruton's works about the nature and purpose of education. I wanted to see if you could play that up a little bit. 
One of the first, uh, he was employed as a columnist with the Times of London from 1983 to 1986. And I think the second article uh, that uh, he published for them uh, was called The Virtue of Irrelevance, The Virtue of Irrelevance. And that continued, that, that cropped up again and again in various forms, that particular column, in expanded forms right till the end of his life. But right at the beginning of his journalistic career that was there, and it basically said this, Everybody that goes into education, all young people, uh, look for quick fixes. They want the next quick fix, uh, the means to the end, as you called it. Now, this is this is not a, a new theme. This is goes back as far as Dickens. Dickens wrote about this in Hard Times. The whole book is dedicated to it. Utilitarian education versus the knowledge of uh, the, the derived from you know reflect a reflective education or a cultural education. Uh, and so, we want what's relevant. So that's not relevant. Latin isn't relevant. It's, it's a dead language. Uh, um, you know, what's relevant ab- about mathematics? You know, uh, no, no. But you see, to approach education like that is to, again, do a terrible disservice to the youth. Because things that they deem, that they deem from their very limited perspectives now, will in time become relevant to them, uh, both at a human level and when wisdom sets in, uh, and and as, as as human life progresses, so the need for mathematics may seem irrelevant to them now. But of course, as we well know, as life progresses, it's everything. Numbers are everywhere. That the, the life of 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 the of of maths is is integral to who we are. Plato understood this. I mean, this goes back as as far as as the Greeks, which is why mathematics and the ordered universe was so central to to what they thought. Um, and so and so it, it is with logic, and so it is with music, and so it is with philosophy. All of which are considered, and so it is with Latin. All of which. Uh, ancient languages, Greek, all of which are considered irrelevant by the academic establishment now because they follow children's tastes. Now, you cannot let children determine what they should and should not learn. And this, it seemed to both Roger and I, is what is happening. He once said a a lovely line that the purpose of education is not to sink to the level of those who have none, but to rise to the level of those who do. Now, that might seem uh, elitist, to, to people, but that's precisely what education ought to be. You, you, you know, you have the education is to bring people from the, from A to Z. You know, it's 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 not to bring them from Z to A. Uh, it's not to you, you, you know fill their minds with uh, mediocrity. Uh, and rather, it's to fill their minds with things that all of humanity should aspire to learn. And it seems to me that's the way education always was treated. I mean, I cannot imagine uh, Cardinal Newman emerging from his saintly sepulchre and uh, looking at the state of education today, uh, because it bears absolutely no resemblance to the, his fine book, the, the Idea of a University, for example, which should be the template for all education. Uh, we learned when I was growing up, and I'm not that old, we had to read the, the Idea of a University in school. Now the idea of a university as extolled by people like Newman is seen as outmoded, outdated, irrelevant, and um, quite frankly, uh, of another era, the Dark Ages. But of course, we now see the problem in the schools. We now see the problem in society uh, that uh, most of the problems that we have, if not all of them, derive from faulty education. You know, And Roger saw this way back in the late 60s and early 70s, you know, that this creeping ideology uh, was, was, was going to erode education, and it did first in the form of sociology and then in the form of uh, pseudosciences, which were creeping in, which always had the, the word studies in them. 
you know, so uh, you know, media studies, uh, feminist studies. And once you saw studies, you know you were into utilitarian education as distinct from education per se. Yeah, I think it's likely due to kind of my exposure and the way that I was exposed to Scruton's works. Uh, initially, I picked up volumes like The Face of God or The Soul of the World. And you see these themes throughout his writing. And even it's mentioned kind of throughout many of the much of this compilation about the role of religion and faith in society. That was something, though, that I was surprised wasn't kind of a section of the work per se. But also, I say, you know, that's a theme that you see kind of come throughout these various columns and throughout much of his writing. One of the things that as I was reading some of the reviews of the volume, a historian here in the United States, Carl Truman, that you probably know well, we've welcomed him on the podcast, had a review of the book, the journal First Things here in America, where he said it remained unclear to him, even after all of his study of Scruton and even kind of working through this, he said it remains unclear personally if Scruton believed in God or whether he simply believed that God was a good idea for society. As someone who was very close to him and obviously kind of intimately involved in much of his writing over the last few years, I wanted to see if you could speak to or kind of unearth a little bit of how Scruton personally viewed faith, especially Christianity in particular, not personally, but even kind of its role in Western civilization. I wanted to see if you could talk a little bit about kind of his perspective on faith um, and the perspective on God. Yes, uh, well, I've, I've answered those uh, contentions about uh, his, um, his, his, uh, the, 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 there is a debate that uh, is not only brought up in that review, but elsewhere, which I think is, is actually wrong, clearly wrong. I've written a number of articles uh, on uh, why Roger Scruton certainly was not an atheist or anything like it. And many of his works bear testimony to that. Now, it is not a conventional theology that we're dealing with in, in Scruton. Much of his work is uh, rooted, although you'd have to, the, 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 the ordinary reader would, wouldn't be exposed to this in any, any heavy doses. But as time goes on, as you, as you stick with it, you realize where it's coming from. And much of it is rooted in Immanuel Kant and uh, his, his vision of faith within the limits of reason alone. And so what Roger spoke about was a, was a kind of a, a, a faithful hesitancy, as it were. He always hesitated on the threshold of the transcendental or the threshold of the infinite, uh, like Kant did. There was, a, there, was a, there was this moment where you could not cross the threshold of the transcendental. You know, you, you, you could posit it, you could affirm it, you could uh, speculate about it, you had intimations of it. And for him, the natural world, the human person, uh, the beauty, all of these were intimations of something that we cannot comprehend, but yet we can see uh, you know, in the midst of, of, of existence. For example, the, 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 the example he liked to use more often than not was that of a painting. Uh, for the materialist and the, the scientist and the pseudoscientist and the neuroscientist, what matters in the painting is the composition, the materials, uh, the canvas, uh, what is structure, how it's structured. But what matters to the intentional or the philosophical or the theological understanding is the painted saint at the heart of the painting. And you would be only half human, he said, if you did not understand and uh, if you did not appreciate and were not captivated by the painted saint. Most people sitting in front of a, a grand painting in an art gallery sit there for hours. They're not looking at the canvas. They're looking into the canvas and beyond the canvas. And they're mesmerized by the subject of the canvas, not the object, the subject. 
And the subject comes to us veiled, obviously, in the flesh and veiled in the, in, in the, through the object or by the object, the, the flesh, the, 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 the composition, the composition of the painting. But it is, it, the, 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 that and that alone is not what the painting is. Just as you behold your wife or your lover or your partner or whoever it might be or your child, you, we all share arms and legs and heads. You know, there's, you don't, you do, you're not drawn to a person because of that. Uh, in the initial stages, you are, because uh, in human life, we are fixated uh, on, uh, to, you know, vis-a-vis the, the surface or the object at the, at the early phases. But then we grow to, to, to fall in love. And falling in love, you fall in love with the subject who is mingled with the flesh. The eye, the, uh, the, the eye of freedom that you cannot touch, you cannot hold, no matter how hard you grasp the flesh, no matter how hard you grasp the painting, you cannot touch or hold or savor in its own right the subject, although it's there shining at you, speaking to you, smiling at you, uh, captivating you. And that is the movement of God for him in the world. You know, the movement of the divine in the world, uh, the movement of the transcendental, the glimmer, which Kant talks about in his aesthetics. He, he can't cross, Hegel tro- crossed that boundary and, and crossed it magnificently, in my opinion, which gives us the whole, uh, even Roger admits this, that there was no finer writing on the Christian incarnation or the Eucharist than Hegel, because he saw, you know, how the two could become one through the incarnation. But that's for another day. But Kant didn't. And I, I think being a good Protestant, as, as Roger was, uh, he, 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 he was hesitant in that. But nonetheless, the, the, the whole philosophy is, 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 is contiguous with it. And you see how the subject shining from the, 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 the veiled nuances of the object which, of course, has been blotted out by contemporary society and contemporary life. I mean, the, the pornographic society in which we live, and I use that term broadly, meaning everything is on the surface, everything is of the flesh, uh, drags the human subject and pulls it down into the world of objects, drags God down from wherever that, the transcendental down, and obliterates it, it defaces it, defaces it. And this is why the face is such an important motif for Roger um, in a different way to that of Emmanuel Levinas, but related somewhat, that the face is the centre of, of everything. I mean, it's where the personality shines. It's where you find the person. Uh, and the, 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 the old saying, the eyes are the window to the soul. Well, the, the eye is the face is the window to the subject, to the self and to God. So the face of the world is the face of God as it shines through and in and through the material texture of, of, of the world. So the philosophy and the theology are brother and sister. They are two sides of the one coin. Uh, of course, this is not to say that he does not see, vis-a-vis Durkheim or the, the social anthropologists, a, a, a role for religion uh, as uh, you know, consolidating membership in a society or for propagating the species, which of course uh, it, it, it does as well, and we all know that. But that is, that is only one mode and one characteristic of it, and certainly not the most important. Um, the, the most important thing for him, and something that runs throughout all his writing, journalistic, philosophically, all of it, uh, is this notion of the subject and the person that lies at the heart of everything we see, if we see properly. And that is what beckons us to the other side, a side that we can only cross at the moment of death, that we get intimations of and we're brought to the threshold of through music, through art, through painting, but most especially in, 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 in the, those moments of, of intimacy where we meet the divine in our human 
family, in, 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 in ourselves and uh, in um, those works of art that have touched us most deeply along, along life's way, which is why when you take art out of the equation, people will not have those experiences and therefore they'll be shut off from God as well as from everything else. Yeah, there's obviously so much more that we could and should unpack there. Um, and that's one of the things that, as you kind of said early on, I've even as a as an individual kind of just have barely scratched the surface of much of his writing and hope to over the coming years to continue to dig deeper because that theme of the face of God, the subject object is something I saw in the face of God. I actually use that in much of my research on uh, facial recognition technology and how we think through kind of the, the implications of that and then thinking through how that connects to aesthetics and art and beauty. Um, obviously, uh, Scruton had a just a wonderful kind of introduction in the very short introduction series on beauty, his larger work on beauty as well. Um, he has voluminous writings. I mean, it's one of those things that it would take a lifetime of kind of digging into that. But as we end and kind of wrap our conversation today, I want to kind of end on that note. Obviously, this is one of uh, many works of collections of his writings or even volumes themselves. I wanted to see what you would recommend. I think for some listeners, they are familiar with him. Maybe they've read some of his major works. They want to go a little bit deeper. Others, maybe this is the first time they've heard about Roger Scruton and they're intrigued uh, by his philosophical thought and his, his even his journalistic writings. Where would you encourage them to start? So what, what are some of volumes that you would encourage us to go deeper on or ones that you think will kind of have a lasting influence or kind of being an enduring work of philosophy uh, in the coming generation? Yes, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a very broad question that um, because he, he wrote so much, I mean, there are 70 books, actually. Um, I, 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 but I, at, the, at the cost of sounding self-promoting, I, I, I would encourage people who have never heard of him before and, and are now uh, intrigued to, to go to conversations with Roger Scruton, the book that we did together, because you get a great insight into uh, how the life and the philosophy emerged and uh, together, and all the major themes are covered there in depth and detail, and you get some, you get the best biographical information you you, you can access. Uh, so that's conversations with Roger Scruton, vis-a-vis -vis his own works. The la the words. Uh, let me begin by saying that the works that will last. Uh, there are a number of them. The the aesthetics of music the aesthetics of architecture, sexual desire, to name three of the, 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 the established works of Scruton. I mean, the heavyweight works, and they are heavyweight works, uh, but they do kind of set the tone for every other uh, work along the way. Those are more in-depth philosophical works, but they were, they're the ones he hoped would last, and I think they will, I mean, as serious philosophical uh, texts. Uh, now, downstream from those are works like Philosophy, Principles and Problems, which is a wonderful little compendium of his worldview, philosophy, colon, principles and problems, a wonderful little compendium of his worldview, ranging across all the topics that we have dealt with today. Uh, what, does, what does philosophy mean to him? What's his particular take on it? And how it applies to music, sex, art, culture, religion, etc. Uh, another one for for beginners that I would uh, I hold very highly, although it's a it's a it's it's, it's almost like a pamphlet, but it's a wonderful book by Encounter Books, uh, Brief Encounter, Brief Encounters series. Um, Culture counts: faith and feeling in a world besieged. Um, now, don't be put don't be confused by the word faith there. It does not mean religious faith, although it can mean that, but it means faith in high culture, faith in humanity, faith and the things that we hold dear. But it's a wonderful book to counter the onslaught 
uh, on culture that we're on high culture that we're experiencing today across the academy and in society writ large, and especially in 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 the great country of America. The two books you mentioned uh, are two of the the the, the finest works of philosophy and theology that he wrote towards the end of his life. I think they shine out amongst all the rest uh, as being, you know, uh, scrutin, beautiful scrutin in many ways, but also serious scrutin. And they are The Face of God and The Soul of the World, both of which were given as as, as, as a series of endowed lectures. But they uh, are very different, but they, they, they cover much of the themes that we have covered today. And you know, you get an introduction to his kind of theological thinking uh, as well. And I would also say to end with two, 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 two other. But there's so many I could I could uh, cover. Of course, he had novels too. Don't forget, wonderful novels. But um, two more. One is uh, Culture Counts, broader work than uh, sorry, but modern culture, the broader work than the earlier one I mentioned, Culture Counts, modern culture, uh, which. Um, covers a vast range of cultural discussions, uh, not only to do with the, the, the arts, but to do with how the academy has corrupted a culture from within and what to do about that. Um, it was very prescient indeed, uh, given the, the, the discussion of education that we had earlier and which he was very concerned with. And lastly, of course, I mentioned it earlier, fools, frauds and firebrands. If you want to understand how Roger took on the leftist uh, and the liberal establishment on its own terms. And again, remembering that he he really did admire a lot of these people that he's criticizing for their sheer genius. And they are geniuses, there's no doubt about it. Because they're wrong doesn't mean that they're not geniuses. Uh, Their fluency of language, their fluency of philosophical thought, most of them were corrupted by um, uh, the Marxist gene that worked into their bloodstream along the way. But And he takes that to task. But you get an insight into these people uh, even as an introduction to their thought, a critical introduction to their thought, it's worthwhile reading that. And you also get a kind of the, the, the it's bookended by, uh, you know, his, his beautiful, um, which I also included in, in the Roger Scruton Reader too, because they're just so good, what is left and what is right. So, you know, so we, we learn in the introduction to, you, you know, what is wrong about left-wing thought from his point of view. And then at the end, we get a beautifully concise, ordered, punchy statement about what the right stands for, uh, how what, what, is, what is proper conservative thinking, because a lot of conservative thinking, certainly in the mainstream, is not Roger Scruton's conservative thinking. Um, and that's brought out in Against the Tide too. So though, that, that book will help people understand his more ideological, political, and no less philosophical um, public stance. So that's as much as I can offer now, Jason, without holding you here all afternoon and giving a little book review of 70 books, which I'm glad to do, by the way, at any stage. Well, no, that's this has been fascinating. I, I hope this is a wealth of resource for folks. Uh, for a listener's sake, we'll list and link to all of those books that you mentioned, Mark, in our show notes, as well as to this wonderful uh, new book, Against the Tide, the best of Roger Scruton's columns, commentaries, and criticisms that was just released this year. Um, but Mark, thank you so much, not only for your scholarship and your work, but especially for taking the time to join us today here on the Digital Public Square. My great, great pleasure, Jason. Thank you very much. Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Dr. Julie and learn more about Roger Scruton's life and works, as well as the recommended resources we talked about in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the weekly tech email briefing that comes out each Monday morning. 
This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology today, as well as to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. The Digital Public Square is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is produced and hosted by Jason Thacker. Production assistance is provided by Caden Christian and technical production provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thank you and I hope you have a great week.